Xavier, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. I invite you to turn with your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who teach Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, our hearts truly are thankful for your word. We thank you for speaking so clearly and directly, not just to these original hearers, but God, the way that you speak to us even now here today. We ask that you would speak through your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, welcome, y'all. It's good to see you again here this week as we pick back up in Revelation. Uh, We've said before that there's probably no more intriguing and intimidating book in all of the Bible. Uh, except for maybe some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, right? Uh, you know, we go through and we get to the book of Revelation. We feel like we're dropped down in the middle and we're like, how did we get here? What is that? Why do they have so many eyes? You know, there are all of these things as we're going through and as we're seeing in the book of Revelation. We have at the very beginning letters given by Jesus to seven that there's an enemy and he has been defeated. Be on alert, the danger of the devil. And then tonight, as we come, we're going to be picking up the pace a little bit. We're going to be looking at three letters all together. We're going to be looking at the letters to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and Philadelphia. And as we look at these, we're going to be seeing tonight that we need to be on alert to false teaching. And it is demonic, and it is deadly that we should take great care for the things that we are listening to, the things that we are living our lives according to. And with each of these three letters, it's no different. They all start the same way. That they hearken back to an Old Testament image or they hearken back to an image that John is, uh, has been revealed to him in Revelation chapter 1 of the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And we see right here who is speaking. That Jesus, as he is speaking to the church at Pergamum, as he is speaking to the church at Thyatira, as he is speaking to the church at Philadelphia, look with me on the screen at these descriptors. To Pergamum, he is the one who has the sharp 
two-edged sword. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The picture in Revelation 1 is of the sword coming out of his mouth, symbolic for the very word of God coming from the word himself. And this word cuts through all that is false. And as Cole read for us just a moment ago, will be used to wage war against those who would seek to distort it. And then we see it to the church at Thyatira on Revelation 2 verse 18 that he is the one with eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze. To the angel at the church at Thyatira writes the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's a penetrating and it's a purifying gaze. It is able to see through and to burn up excuses. It's able to get to the heart of the matter but it's also able to purify that which it sees. And he has feet like burnished bronze, an image of stability, of being unmoved, but also being burnished at that point that there is this energy, that it is that is dynamic, it is static all into one. And then we get to the church at Philadelphia, over in chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This is an image hearkening back to the book of Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament. And the one that has the keys is the one that has the authority. It's the one who has the access. It's the one who calls the shots. There, wasn't, there weren't a whole lot of spare keys that were just floating around back then, given out indiscriminately. You go down to the Piggly Wiggly and you pop your key in the machine and out pops another one. No, there were a very select few. And there were, in this sense, only one who has the keys to the kingdom. And here it is Christ. He is the one who possesses all power, authority, and control. This is the one who is speaking. The one who has the sword, who has the word, the one who has eyes that can see, the one who is firm and unmoving, and the one who has the keys, the access, the power, the authority, and the one who calls the shots. It is with that understanding of knowing who the speaker is that we then move on to the message. Well, what is he in fact saying? To the letter at Pergamum, he says that false teaching has come into the church. We pick up in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And that's not him saying, like, I know where you dwell, like you're in Satan's, you know, habitat kind of thing. No, it's like you are a part of the house of Satan. No, he's saying that right there in Pergamum, it is the concentration of evil and the pagan religion and worship was so strong that he's saying that you are dwelling actually where Satan's throne is yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful servant who witness who was killed among you like there have been martyrs in this area where Satan dwells and yet you did not forsake Jesus he knows where they're located he sees them and he commends them for holding fast to his name and for not denying the faith in the face of death but you see it's not enough just to die for something like if we were only looking at the truth of something based on if people were willing to die for it, then there have been martyrs in every major religion in the world. It's kind of like, the, I, I've said before with other people, it's like there, there is no power in prayer. And at first that comes across like, what? Can you say that? No, there's no power in prayer. There is power in the one we are praying to. And for us, it's not just in the act of dying 
that there is power, but no, there is power in the one that we are laying our lives down for. And right here, they need to be willing to die, not just for any cause, not for just what's convenient, not just for this, but they need to be willing to die for what's true because all of this sounds great, but we get to verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. And when Jesus says those things, we need to be on alert. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That Right here, the names, Balaam and Balak, it would have been a dead giveaway to those first century Christians. Because what it is, it's referring back to the story of God's people in the Old Testament. That Balak was the king of this place called Moab, and it was a kingdom that was on the borderland of Israel. And he was a little bit worried that God's people were coming back into the land. And so what he does is he goes out and he finds this spiritist. He finds this ancient Instagram influencer, right? He finds Balaam. And he goes out and he's like, bro, I'm going to hire you to come over here. I've got three curses that I want you to speak over the nation of Israel so that my border is secure. Well, this is the same Balaam that on his way, right, he's on a donkey. His donkey rebukes him, all this other kind of stuff. What he as the spiritist couldn't see, the donkey could, the irony that's there. And he comes, he actually doesn't pronounce the curses, but actually the Lord forces him to pronounce blessings. And Balak is just so bent out of shape that all of this is happening. But what we see, that the direct attack, sending curses, on God's people wasn't working. And so now they needed an indirect attack. And we get up on the indirect attack in Numbers 31. Look at the screen. The direct attack wasn't proving effective, so they go the way of seduction. It says right here, after all of these events have transpired, behold, these women on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam advises the young women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel and to lead them away, not through curses, not through force, not through direct action, but through sexual immorality and idolatry. The very things that are being leveled against the church at Pergamum right here in the New Testament. This is the teaching of Balaam. This is the stumbling block that was put in front of them. A direct attack on the church at Pergamum, a direct attack on their faith through persecution and martyrdom wasn't working. So now there is an indirect attack, false teaching as it is coming into the church. They were enticed to compromise their faith in Jesus and they were going the way of idolatry. And it was slow and incremental impacting priorities creating new habits, eroding conviction, and privatizing the faith. The direct attack wasn't working, so they had to come in through another way. It reminds me of you know, that ancient myth with the Trojan horse. Are you all familiar with this? And the Battle of Troy, like the, the Greeks couldn't get through, and so they build this large wooden horse with some of the people planted firmly inside. And then the Greeks act like they're going away. They sail away. And then what happens? The people bring the horse in, but there are some folks in there, unbeknownst to them. And then when everybody falls asleep, they hop out. They go, unlock the door. Everybody comes in. The Greeks win. 
But it's even come across into like modern day with like computer viruses like Trojan horses. Are y'all familiar with these? We have taken cybersecurity very seriously here at Dawson. I will have you know. All the people in staff in here are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. That we have some incredible, like I'm telling you, I honestly don't know how we hired Ken and Keith. Like they are so incredibly good at what they do. And, but they have taken our cybersecurity to a next level. So much to the point that we have gone through training to make sure that we don't open up like, anti, like bad emails. Uh, you know, to make sure that we don't, you know, compromise the network and that we do this, that, and the other. And so much so that they have even masqueraded as those who would seek to undo the network. And they, will, they know us. They know our staff. And they will try to do things. They will send us nefarious emails to try and get us to click and open a PDF that we're not supposed to open. And when we do, something will pop up on the screen saying, gotcha, right? I found one of those and forwarded it to Keith and Ken like I was supposed to. And I got a digital gold star. I will have you know. I was so proud of that. I printed it off and put it on my door. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But I should have. I think I'm going to do that tomorrow. But we go through this, right? That there are these ways that a direct attack, like compromising the network, like if we were just to come through and through pure computational power with a supercomputer, probably wouldn't be able to crack through the firewall. But what if we could get somebody on the inside just to open up an attachment? What if we could just get somebody on the inside to be able to get in a panic and to look for this or to open that or to give this password or to fill out that form? That sometimes there's a slow, incremental attack. And it's the same way with false teaching when it infiltrates the church. False teaching can look like slow, incremental changes actually luring us away and leading us to dangerous places that we never intended to go. We must be on alert for this false teaching. Because like we saw last week, there's an enemy that wouldn't seek to build us up, but to seek to tear us down. Not to seek to lead us closer to the Lord, but actually to lure us away. And we see this at Pergamum, but we also see it at Thyatira in a little bit of a different way. Pick up in verse 19 with me. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceeded the first. <laughs> Sounds great, right? What more could you want from the Son of God to be able to say? Verse 20, but I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice what? Same song, second verse. Sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, everything, like in Pergamum, seems to be good, but Jesus has something against this church. The fact that they are tolerating, that they are allowing to exist in their midst, that they're not directly addressing Jezebel. And we're like, well, who is Jezebel? Again, it's an Old Testament reference. Now we're going back to the book of Kings in the Old Testament. That Jezebel, she was the wife of Ahab, the king, a really bad king in Israel. But she really stands as a symbolic figure for religious pluralism. The fact that she, there, she lured her husband towards worshiping a false Canaanite called Baal. B-double-A-L, right? That Baal and the Canaanite gods, he was like at the top of the pantheon, presiding over a large pantheon. That he rode a bull, he carries lightning bolts in his hands. And in the service of him, he was the god of fertility, both for humans, for animals, and for crops. And what he would do is he would have his people to do ritual prostitution for both sexes. And they would indulge in other sensuous practice. Like if you could imagine 
that showing up to a temple and having sexual relations with someone and that was your worship for the God that was looking on. That that was the type of ritual, that was the type of practices that they gave in service to this God. And God's people were bringing that, tolerating that alongside in the camp. And they, at Thyatira, they might not have been teaching this in Sunday school at First Church at Thyatira. It might not have even been happening like in the sanctuary or reenacting the practices in small group. But Jesus' charge is coming to them for their pretense of being open-minded and using this word, tolerant. Of having this promoting ideas and practices that subverts the very word of God. There are some of those same things that were infiltrating the church at Pergamum. Sexual immorality, food offered to idols. You see, the false teaching can be slow and incremental, but the false teaching, it can look like tolerating things that are anti-Christ. That sometimes the false teaching is like, oh yeah, you can keep Jesus. That's great. Like, yeah, more, more party, more for the party. But it's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus in addition to other things. It's Jesus bringing everyone else in, all in the name of inclusivity, in the name of tolerance. But in contrast to Pergamum, in contrast to Thyatira, we have the church at Philadelphia. And this is one of the few churches that doesn't receive any sort of correction from Jesus, but rather just receives commendation. We see it in verse 8. I know your works, and behold... I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I see you. I know this. And yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. That this is in contrast to Pergamum and Thyatira. You see, Pergamum and Thyatira, they didn't forsake his name. They were patiently endured. They were faithful even if they had a martyr in their congregation. They were going through, but what they didn't do, they did not keep his word. The church at Philadelphia does both. They keep his word and they don't deny his name. You see, what we are called to do is we remain faithful in the truth by keeping his word and his name. We don't deny him. And we live in according in a way that is pleasing to him. We live in following him. This is how we remain faithful. Well, how do we respond? How did Jesus encourage these churches to respond in light of this information that he brings before them? Well, the church at Pergamum, he says in verse 16, Therefore, repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your direction. You are walking in this way. Stop, turn around, and go in the other direction. Repent, therefore. If not, I'll come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth that the word that cuts through falsehood that proceeds forth from his mouth will be able to cut it down to size and it will be exposed for what it is. It's like Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That this word that we have right here, we... Hold fast. We reject the teaching and we hold. It's not just what we abstain from. It's but what we hold on to dearly. Not from the negative, but from the positive. We see it Thyatira and Philadelphia. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast. Cling tightly. Clutch with everything that you got. Verse 25. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The very word of God. 
to the one who conquers and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Or in chapter 3, verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That we here in this day and age, the church there and now us, we are to turn away. We are to reject the false teaching and we are to hold fast to the word of God. We're to be like the Bereans. You're like, who? Like the Berenstein Bears? Like, Berean, who are we talking about? The Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, as the gospel message was going out, as the Apostle Paul was going on his missionary journeys, he comes to this place he had just gotten through with Thessalonica. He comes to Berea, and there are these folks. Paul, the Apostle, coming to teach. And they are taking what he is saying, and they are measuring it against the Word of God. And Paul commends them for that. They're not just taking it because so-and-so said so. They're not just doing it because they have a certain number of followers on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. They're not just doing it because they hold this or that position or they've been elected to this or that office within the church. But they are weighing what is said against the very word of God because, you see, false teachers, they can come in from a lot of different areas. And they can come in from a lot of different ways. The Apostle Peter, as he was writing to the churches in 2 Peter, he gives some, I think, just a paradigm-shaping passage for us as we go through and you're like, well, Blake, I... If false teachers are a threat, like I, what do I do? Like How do I recognize false teachers as I hold on to the word of God? I think this is something that is very instructive for us as I just walk through this very slowly. 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's the first thing about false teachers is that they're going to give a different message. It might be completely different, or it might be the message, but just adjust it ever so slightly. The false teaching will at first be subtle, done in secret, but it will swell into noticeable public renouncing of Jesus. That These destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, there is a different savior when you get right down to it. That their false teaching will deny the full humanity or the full deity of Jesus. This master who bought them, bringing upon them swift destruction. There's a different outcome. This false teaching will not lead to building up, but will in fact lead to destruction. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of the way of truth will be blasphemed. You see, there's a different call. Not a call to follow truth. This false teaching will give people a license to follow their sensual passions. Modern phrases like, just live your truth. Just do what's in you. Follow what makes you happy. Become who you truly are. This is following their sensuality. Verse 3, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. There's a different motive. That this teaching is often motivated by greed. And then there's a different witness. There is false words. The false teaching will deny the word of truth. As we go through, there's a different message, a different savior, a different outcome, a different call, a different motive, and a different witness. That this, as Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, is teaching by wolves who are really dressed up as sheep. That as we go through and as we look at this, something that has been helpful to me is there are three questions that you can ask when somebody comes knocking on the door. And says, hi, do you have a few minutes to talk with me? 
or as someone engages you with conversation or as you start to seek to share the gospel with people and they say, oh yeah, I believe in God. The first question that you can ask to really be able to get down to what to somebody is, who is God? And when they give you an answer, ask them to elaborate. And then the second question by extension would be, well, how do you have a relationship with him? And then lastly, what is your authority? So as you're going through, you have these three helpful questions that you are able to be able to distinguish truth from error, those from outside the faith, those inside the faith, as we are seeking to be on alert that there were false teachings back in that day and age, and the false teachings really could be summed up into idol worship and sexual immorality. False gods, as we saw last semester in our series, cow tipping, as we were going through tearing down idols, that what did we see? We saw that really at the essence of idol worship is the worship of self. That really what we have is a warring of worship in the Bible. Are we going to worship ourselves or are we going to worship the one who made us and redeemed us? And as we go through and as we see, it wasn't just false teaching back then, but y'all, there are false teachings today. And this is going to be a hard part of the sermon. Because it's like an oncologist giving a reading doesn't take pleasure in being able to give news when something shows up on the scan. I don't take pleasure, I don't get enjoyment out of being able to see these three major areas of false teaching that I see, bless the Lord, not here at Dawson, but in the church at large as things are becoming more connected and as certain folks are becoming more and more vocal. And so these are three things that you need to be on alert for while you are in school and even on afterwards because I have seen people in this season and in the seasons after college chase after, give their lives to, fall into and ultimately renounce the truths that they have been given and the truths that they have claimed to believe. The first false teaching that we really see is that of racism and Christian nationalism. That as we see this, that God has been married to a political party or to a certain race. And as we ask folks those three questions, who is your God? Who is God? If we were to ask them, God is someone who ends up looking a lot like them. God is someone who ends up voting like they do straight down a party ticket. That God is one who likes people that look like them a whole lot better than those of someone else. It's in the name of racism and serving the God of Christian nationalism that people in the church could convince others that enslaving people was okay. That African Americans were only three-fifths of a person. And that it was okay to preach them and for them to experience spiritual freedom, but actual freedom... That was out of the question. It's the reason why at different places throughout the church we're able to see images like this. The blasphemy, y'all. That people buying into that God looks like me and loves people that look like me and to everybody else the exclusion. How do you have a relationship with this God? By being good, by being on the right side, by being of a certain race, by voting a certain way, and by winning. Please take that down. Goodness gracious. What is your authority? Certain Bible passages 
cherry-picked to the exclusion of others. Your cable news channel, your favorite radio host, charismatic figure of the day. But what does this deny? What well, denies the image of God, the communion of saints, the Catholicity of the church, the great commandment, justification by faith, contra-cultural legalism, the doctrine of repentance, and the incarnation that Jesus, in fact, was a Near Eastern, Eastern Jewish man, not white with flowing blonde hair and blue eyes. That this is a false teaching that can infiltrate the church and can do and has done tremendous harm. And we have to be on guard against ways that it seeks to infiltrate even today. But it's not only racism and Christian nationalism. The second one is that of the prosperity gospel. That as we go through in this prosperity gospel, we have preachers, men and women, up in suits with tons of gold rings, private jets, mansions, and multiple houses, leading through telethons, coming across on various news networks, telling us that there are some things that this God wants you to have your best life now, that every day will be Friday. That there will be someone who can bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity, and you can experience it on now, and if you're not, it's just because you don't have enough faith. It's damning news. How do you have a relationship with this God? By being good, by asking boldly, and by claiming it into existence. What is your authority? Certain Bible passages cherry-picked again. Those that would make you feel good and powerful. There's a Christian uh, poet by the name of Shai Lin. He wrote something called False Prophets. And the S at the end is the dollar sign. So many of these are often motivated by greed, fleecing the flock. And this is what he says, Let me begin while there is ink still left in my pen. I am set to contend for truth. You can bet it will offend. Deception within the church, man, who's letting them in? We talked about this years ago. Let's address it again. I ain't really trying to start beef. But some who claim to be a part of a sheep got some sharp teeth. They're wolves. But Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 16, we can recognize them. So there's nothing left for me to do except to speak to you in the spirit of Jude 3 and 2 Peter 2. Turn off TBN. That channel is overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements, financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people. Teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. Ungodly and wicked. Ask yourself how they cannot be convicted. Treating Jesus like a lottery ticket. And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type. Because some of their statements are right. That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. This teaching can't be believed without a cost. The lie is that you can achieve a crown without a cross. You see, with the prosperity gospel, you can have the good life to the exclusion of the God life. That you can now try to pursue all of these earthly comforts. But what happens when the diagnosis comes? What happens when the divorce papers are delivered? What happens when that loved one dies? What happens when the job falls through? It's in those moments. It's all a theology of glory without a theology of the cross. And the last one, kind of umbrella, that we see a lot of the false teaching happening in today is in the area of sexual immorality. And we see this a lot with the hookup culture. 
the way pornography is running rampant, and we see again with the continual cultural streams, and even how certain dispositions towards those in the LGBTQ community are being brought in and championed. Who is God in this umbrella of sexual immorality? This false teaching. Someone who wants me to be happy and fully self-actualized. How do I have a relationship with him? By being true to myself. By being true who do he made me to be. What is your authority? Maybe certain Bible passages, but largely personal experience. And the personal experiences of others. Doug Webster, he's a theologian over at Cathedral Church of the Advent awesome church here in town he was one of my professors at Beeson as well but he has this to say in reflection on this passage and in this day and age that we find ourselves in Balaam's advice to the Moabites was don't curse the Israelites seduce them get them to have sex with your daughters and then you'll have them the same demonic strategy appears to be working in the western church today heterosexual promiscuity and homosexual practice have robbed the church of passionate witness Self-professing, sincere Christians see little wrong with premarital sex. We are in the grips of a full-scale spiritual crisis, but few want to acknowledge the sinful compromise that is happening all around us. And y'all, I've seen this in my own life and ministry in the recent years, recent months, and y'all, even in the recent days. Of very public figures and of people that were very close to me in my inner circle. It's the reason, like, with certain folks that have gone down certain paths and they have gone and they have tried to add other things to following Jesus, but then they just leave Jesus by the wayside and pursuing these things all out. It's like even on our Oxana playlist, we have a beautiful rendition of Holy, Holy, Holy by Audrey Assad. This past week on Twitter, she's left the faith. We go through and we look at things like, uh, there's a Lutheran priest, her name is Nadia Bowles-Weber. Uh, she makes her rounds on the news circuits every now and then, but has come out in support of saying that it's okay and holy in the Christian life for Christians to consume pornography as long as it is ethically sourced. Or we have others. Jen Hatmaker, who has said that homosexual unions can actually be holy in the sight of the Lord. And Rosaria Butterfield who, if you're not familiar with her, gosh, what an incredible testimony, strong woman of faith. She, is, she was up at Syracuse University, director, chair of the Department of English, helping to advance the new queer studies department. She had had a decades-long lesbian relationship, multiple vacation properties and pets with her partner. And in her memoir, she says, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And I knew that following Jesus was going to cause me to lose a life that I loved. And as she was going through and reflecting on these words from Jen Hatmaker, she said that if I had found these words back in 1996 instead of 2016, they would have been so comforting to me, they would have felt like a bomb to my soul, all the while tying a millstone around my neck. Or we see in the instance of recent days with Robbie Zacharias and sexual immorality, predation, Secrecy. Going through in private. I've seen it in personal acquaintance. Like, you know, a guy I discipled. My first church job down in Tuscaloosa last week. Posting on Instagram how he's left the faith. 
He's moving out west with his partner. And now he is living the life that he had always wanted to live. Like Others, we in my second discipleship group there that Becca and I had sacrificially given for him to be able to go through a ministry internship out in Texas and for him to come across with a similar post just months before. Leaving the faith. He was on track to go to seminary. He was on track to serve in the church. And now he's, I don't even know where. That those who would seek this false teaching, it's often slow, it's incremental, it creeps in, it comes through a different way. And then you're trying, you're tricked into thinking, oh, I can have Jesus and this, Jesus and something extra, Jesus and what I really want. But you see, the thing about it is, you have, we have to hold fast to what we have. The cross cannot coexist with the sin that we want to hold on and to cling so closely to. The cross will either kill our sin or we will leave the cross so that we can keep it. And for us, what we need to do, we need to realize that all of these things, Christian nationalism, the prosperity gospel, sexual immorality, all of these things are in essence worshiping ourselves. Our racism, our perceived superiority over other people, it is not of the Lord. We need to lay it down. Our materialism, our longing for riches to accumulate, to have more, the influence, the following, the prestige, the comforts, it is not of the Lord. We must lay it down. Our sexual immorality, our one night stands, our pornography addictions, homosexual relationships, these are not of the Lord. We must lay them down. And we must hold fast to what we have. We must become so familiar with the truth that we can easily spot what is false. That would be my last charge to us here tonight. That we must become so familiar with the truth that we can easily spot what is false. Haddon Robinson, he was one of the great preachers of the last century. In the 20th century, he had this to say. He was talking about a young boy that he had known from the rural region in China who wanted to learn about jade, you know, that jewel. He wanted to learn about jade. And so he was going through that stuff. And he went to a talented old teacher. And this gentleman, he put a piece of the precious stone into this young boy's hand and told him to hold it tight. And then he began to talk of philosophy, men and women, economics, everything under the sun. And after an hour, he took back the stone and he sent the boy home. Well, the next day happened, the boy came, stone was put in his hand, and the same procedure happened. It was repeated this way for every day for several weeks. And the boy became frustrated. Like, when was he going to learn about the jade? But he, he was too polite to be able to question the wisdom of this venerable teacher. And so he goes to this man one day, and this day is different. This day, when the old man put something into his hands, it was a rock. Just run of the mill, go out by the sidewalk, grab a rock and put it in his hand. And immediately the boy cried out instinctively, that's not jade. That what we need to do is we need to be so familiar with what is true that we can instantly spot what is false. And we don't need to be so obsessed at trying to sniff it out at every corner. We don't need to be on watch alert and start a blog calling out every time that we see it. But what we can do is we can hold fast to the truth. Because I want you to have what's true. 
I want you to have not some counterfeit, not some other gospel, but the one that takes sin seriously and calls it what it is, and the one that magnifies the grace of God to cover your sin. Because when we ask those three questions, who is God, how do you have a relationship with him, and what is your authority? We see who is God. He is the triune God who has created you and redeemed you. How do you have a relationship with him? By grace, through faith alone, repent and believe the good news. And what is your authority? It is the unchanging word of God. Nothing else. His words come from him. We need to be on alert. Because it can come through in deceptive ways. And we need to hold fast in the truth and what he's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for wisdom. We ask for protection. We ask for your help. God, we know that there are ways that the enemy, that others would seek to lead us away. Help us to hold fast. And as we do so, would we find that you are holding fast to us all along. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.